0: Welcome to the Sunshine Satellite Story Podcast, mythology mashups and odd apologues for young audiences. I am your host, Amanda Louise, moving you through the realms of malicious monsters, meritorious heroes, through the practice of real and imagined magic, shining a light into the darkness, and conjuring something meaningful out of chaos. Welcome back to The Viking and the Princess. This is our third chapter. In our first two podcasts, we met the Viking, Akeda, a basically honorable man with good intentions, yet without a quest. The Snow Queen had taken an interest in him. She wanted to add him to her collection of frozen mansouls. When the Viking prevailed against her, the gods of Asgard noticed him. They gave him a quest to find a compass on the island of Atlantis. This is where we meet the Princess Moiety, a beautiful young lady whose attractiveness is only skin deep. She was in the process of allowing herself to be sacrificed to Ipaluvik, an ugly ocean giant, when Ikeda rudely interrupted her grand plans. Ikeda tried to kill the giant with arrows that Thor had given him. The problem was that the arrows, which were wrought from the same type of silver as Thor's hammer, were boomeranged back into the quiver before doing any real damage to the intended target chapter three great love speaks in the most wretched and dirty hearts only the tone of its voice depends on the echoes of the place in which it sounds george MacDonald, at the back of the north wind To all appearances, the gods had deserted the Viking in his need. In his frustration, Akeda fired that same arrow at the moon. Take it back, he growled. The arrow hit the moon and sent up a spray of shining moon dust with the impact. Perhaps in some cases, the Viking's instincts were smarter than his brain, and perhaps this actionable lack of philosophy is what we could attribute his good fortune to in many cases. Perhaps his willingness to take the next step, any logical next step, protected him from the overwhelming stagnancy that overtakes men like Moss overtakes stationary stones. Piers had sometimes accused him of brash and unsafe action, but no one ever accused Ikeda of lackluster procrastination, which is the greater evil. The arrow returned to the quiver, fully drenched in moon poison. This poison is released from the moon every 28 days when it is in full bloom. That is to say, when it is a perfectly round globe like a white seeded dandelion. When the world was young, people knew about moon poison, how it drifts its dusty seeds out into the solar system on lunar flares. Today, after landing on the moon and scientifically evaluating its surface and finding mostly igneous rocks, modern man has disposed of any new speculation concerning moon makeup. However, if the astronauts had taken up residence and observed the moon firsthand through its cycle, they might have reported otherwise. It is important to remember that all things magical or miraculous, are made of the same atoms and elements as the rest of the universe. Water can be turned miraculously to wine, but first it has to flow through the vine. There is nothing strange about that. And so again, without prelude of excessive forethought, Ikeda fired the loaded arrow at the guffawing giant, and this time, when it hit its mark, the moon poison dissipated into Iapaluvik's bloodstream. In his youth, Ipaluvik the Terrible had grown fat, munching on Eskimos and picking his teeth with narwhal tusks. These days, he fancied himself a snowbird, relocating in his middle age to the sunny Mediterranean. He would still visit his mother up north, and she would chat with him about what she wanted him to get her for her birthday, or nag at him for never being able to maintain a marriage. Sometimes, She would put the two together. "'Oh, my little snuggie mumps,' she would announce as though the thought had just occurred to her. "'Did you know my birthday is this spring? "'Maybe you keep your next wife without taking a bite out of her. "'Then maybe you could visit me with sweet little baby grand stinkies on my birthday.'" Iapaluvik thought that maybe he would like to have some little stinkers to carry on the terrible heritage of the Iapaluvik namesake. But self-restraint is not something any child learns when they are catered to by doting mothers. This is especially true in the case of children who are the size of several elephant seals. So, Ipuluvik's well-meaning mother had spoiled her son and, in the process, spoiled any chance at hearing the thumpety thwap of little grand stinky footsteps in her home. Ipuluvik was really intending to actually entertain the thought of, perhaps not taking a bite out of this wife. He was going to try to save this one for his mother. Well, maybe he only one small bite. It was just that whenever he tried to only take one small bite, he always wound up eating the whole wife. He did not think this was any fault of his. It was just that it was a shame to let the rest of the wife go to waste with profuse blood loss. If they would just stop bleeding, he would not have to finish them off. All these thoughts evaporated from Ipaluvik's conscious mind as the poison crashed its way into his brain like an explosion of light. He felt as if the full spectrum of the rainbow was glowing over his head and emanating all the way to his sacrum. Open-mindedness nestled in like a deer tick. A thought of vengeance against the Viking for robbing him of his entitlement entered his mind. He did not evaluate the thought as being good or bad, but simply let it exist in his consciousness alongside his inner self. And then a thought of hunger, and then a thought of his armpit itching traveled through his consciousness. Ipaluvik let each of these thoughts pass through his mind without latching onto them, and as he ceased to attach meaning to his thoughts, he slipped deeper and deeper into a trance-like state at the bottom of which he found an all-encompassing, empty, ignorant bliss. The Viking and the princess were not aware of the details of Ipaluvik's stroke of mindfulness. They only saw his jaundiced eyes roll back into a slightly smiling skull as he slipped calmly below the rolling blue waves. Come on, jump into my boat! Akeda was completely aware that the moon poison had a short half-life and would soon clear itself from the giant's bloodstream, even quicker given the amount of seawater he was most likely swallowing. I, most certainly, will not do any such thing. Moiti retorted, disdainfully emphasizing each word, besides the fact that this Viking had spoiled her pity party. The haughty princess was suspicious of anyone military or masculine-looking as being patriarchal. At the very least, they were sure to insist on telling her what to do. She had always fancied the company of slight, unimposing men, attributing it to her artistic tastes. The real reason she liked feminine-acting men was because she was so narcissistic. She could not imagine being attracted to anything that looked very different from herself. And oh boy, this broad-chested, bearded abomination fit the bill of every toxic thing that Moiety did not like. He probably hunted deer, too, just for fun. She crossed her arms and flopped herself violently down into a seated position in the bottom of her flowery craft. Moiety thought that she came across as dignified and smartly decisive with her cool refusal. Akeda thought she looked like a funny little wet cat. Whatever their initial impression, the necessary action was for the princess to climb into the Viking's boat. Her soggy raft was now barely buoyant. Akeda imagined that it would not be a difficult thing to pick her up by her hair, but dismissed the idea as not practical in the long term. She was sure to be one of those women whose cooperative disposition was inversely related to proper hair arrangement. Proper introductions would prove to be more fruitful than a fistful of hair. My name is Akeda, the Viking began. Akeda... "'Boy,' he snorted, "'what kind of name is that for a viking? Are you some sort of half-breed?' Ikeda could not help but feel the humorous irony of being taunted by this little woman in a sinking ship. He remembered his father telling him that he should not fight anyone who was not bigger or tougher than himself. Only cowards kick three-legged dogs. He did not think this is what his father had in mind, but he laughed despite the insult.' Moiety did not take the Vikings' mirth to mean anything but disrespect. She may have looked exactly like a wet cat, but she was not quite as helpless as a kitten. She still had a few tricks up her sleeve, or more specifically she had a large kite in her backpack. She hooked her feet into the chrysanthemum craft and unfurled a lightweight, rainbow shaped sail. When the wind filled it, it was so large a plough horse could have easily walked under its arch. "'I cry out to you, North Wind, if ever you have had mercy on maidens to carry me away!' And for quite a few ridiculous moments, nothing happened. Soggy, moiety, glared angrily at her bemused rescuer. The smack, smack, smack of the rhythmic sea energy was the only noise that passed between their impasse. And then, in the sky, a cloud that started out as small as your fist— steadily mushroomed into a cumulonimbus, spreading its ominous shade over the waves, rolling ever insistently through the depths. A bright wind rocketed along the surface, cutting an obvious, straight and narrow path through the darkened waters. As it passed Akita's longboat, he was sure that he had caught a glimmer of a giant translucent woman whose impossibly long black hair glinted with bioluminescence in the stormy sky. The ghost was gone as quickly as it came. It exploded into the princess's tiny kite, spiraling her up in a skyward arc, and gusted her out into the deepest blue waters where the tallest of the Lapland trees could stand one upon the other many times over without summiting the water's surface. Women, the Viking grumbled his thunderous Viking grumbles and began pursuit. Akeda did not feel any love for this woman, but he did feel that the operation provided him with a sense of purpose he had not felt since the battles of his youth when he and his men had secured the farmland borders. Because their fierce reputation was renowned in the Northland, His people had enjoyed an unprecedented peacetime in which education and religious art was just beginning to flourish. Akeda did not feel even slightly romantic to this rogue woman who did not seem to notice the world beyond her nose, but he did feel that he had a job to do. And he certainly could not go home happy until his mission was complete. Akeda knew the North Wind was a tricky spirit to deal with. She was not an evil spirit. She was very specifically a good and righteous spirit. However, goodness has a strong potential to manifest itself as a destructive and violent. One cannot depend on the north wind to be safe, but you could depend on her to be doing the right thing. North wind was always faithful to her mission. She did her job, whether she was called upon to free a stuck bumblebee from a closed tulip or sink a gold-laden Spanish galleon, she was always right on task. Moïdi, in the clutches of all that violent goodness, was terrified. The north wind that she had expected to coddle her and set her down gently on a beautiful beach was whipping her about the sky in a manner that Moiety had felt was most wicked and certainly undignified treatment of royalty. She expected a carpet ride on the Zephyrs, but this was more like riding a waterfall. Moïdi lost control of her body and screamed to be released, She did not understand that to be safe with North Wind, one must go with the North Wind and not just be in the North Wind. If she could have allowed North Wind what the North Wind willed, she would have been quite at peace. Not comfortable, mind you, but at peace, which is never the same thing. The North Wind would not purify the princess against her will, and so she allowed Moiety to struggle loose from her windy tendrils. Moiety plummeted like a rag doll into the gaping ocean. Akada's craft thumped down over the crest of the waves. He had followed faithfully with the north wind's receding vespers and saw the princess's falling form, trailed by her flowing gown, plummet unceremoniously into the water. Moiety almost felt repentant as the Viking maneuvered his longboat in for a second rescue. At this point, he was effectually the last man on earth, and she reached out for the threefold cord he extended to her. A dark, ominous shadow passed between Moiety and the longboat. The Viking blinked hard. Hurry, princess, he urged, or else what? You'll poke me with your sword, she retorted. More shadows flitted in the blue waves. Moiti grabbed onto the cord, and Ikeda started pulling her in hand over hand. A fluke-shaped tail tossed a spray of water behind the princess, who was completely unaware of any danger. Mermaids. The Viking well knew the daughters of the Valkyrie and Harpies. Give us the beauty! They screeched, beauty, beauty! the empty disks of their black eye holes glinted in round bloodlust. Their desperate infernal chant resonated into the wind, and Ikeda abhorred the day that their wish was granted. Their feminine features were gashed with a gaping mouth that stretched from ear to ear and a maw full of perfectly serrated tiny triangular teeth. The Viking. Knew of the peculiar dietary habits of mermaids from their skirmishes and sharing the seas with these slippery foes. Mermaids are flesh feeders, but not just your typical common manivores. When they feast on young women's flesh, they become beautiful for a short time. They use their beauty to lure men down to the bottom where they roast them in the geothermically heated water that arises from the fissures between Earth's tectonic plates until they turn into giant tube worms. The mermaids knew that if they were to consume a princess, her flesh would make them amphibious. At the same time, her youth would be locked up inside their rotten bones for all eternity, and they would then be able to move among men with the appearance of real women. These mermaids would bear children with men and craft deceptive runes. The more mermaid blood intermingled with man's blood, the more man would cease to be, and in his place would arise a hyper-feminized race of men that would turn their backs on the crafts of hunting, exploring, weapon-wielding, and other deeds of renown. Even men with no mermaid blood in their heritage would fall under the rune's sway, Eventually, human women would have to desert their children to mass childcare as they attempted to fill the void created by dwindling masculinity. One of the mermaids had a fistful of the princess's hair. Her life energy was draining out into the mermaid's face, contorting it into a mockery of beauty. She sneered vanity. Moiety fought like any Bruin deprived of her cubs, but the desperate mermaids knew the fates would never deal such an opportunity again. The princess slipped under the blue veil. Akaida knew he would have to die for her. He grabbed Aodin's heavy orange bag and secured them to his belt for a sinking weight to speed his descent in time to reach the mermaids in their retreat. Thin rays of sunlight penetrated the pressing icy water like candlelight on black stained glass. The viking sunk deathward and he feared she was lost. He did not know why he cared, for surely her troubles were not his own. Deeper and deeper he sank, pulled by the gravity of his quest into the pulsing blackness. The Viking touched the bag of oranges on his belt. The peels seemed to dissolve under the pressure of the depth, revealing a luring luminosity of glinting gold. The light exploded into the black depth like a hellhound. They were not actually oranges but Aodin's golden apples covered in an orange peel that dissolved and floated away under the salty pressure. Then, there they were, in all their splendorous, wicked terror, the mermaids with the drowning princess snapping at the apples with their graceful claws. Even the princess, her terror momentarily suspended in the light of Aodin's apples, gaped and grabbed at the prize. The viking loosed the apples from the bag, and they tumbled down through the thermoclines toward the inky bottom in all directions. The mermaids grappled with one another in their haste to reach the metallic fruit. And even the princess, despite her condition, was willing to sacrifice life to gain the prize. Akeda, not entirely accidentally, punched her in the stomach to drag her back to the surface with him. She collapsed, sputtering with no air for tears in his longboat. That's why she wrapped him in a peel, Ikeda thought to himself. Aodin knew that the apples turn to dust when they're given away by someone other than Aodin herself. She was more clever than Loki gave her credit. The mermaids were surely howling in rage at the loss of both Princess and Immortality Apple in the same five minutes. Now, what to do with this difficult woman... I am looking for a compass, the Viking announced with more grandiosity than he felt. The princess snorted. If this rumbling of secretions in the recesses of your sinuses indicates that you disdain to approve my actions, princess, you can just get over it. What does a bearded barbarian like you need with sophisticated navigational equipment? goaded the princess. If you need to find your way home... "'I'm sure that you could follow the trail of farmer's blood "'and ruined architecture back to hell where you came from.' "'This is ridiculous,' the Viking fumed. "'If he did not know the ancient prophecy of the mermaid race "'splitting their tails into legs and mingling their blood with man's, "'he would have considered tossing the woman back to try her luck with Jonah.' "'It would be just my luck,' thought the Viking to himself, "'that I would hasten that era upon us by tossing this fish back.' "'He stole a glance at her stony face.' No gratitude there, by Asgard, or do I really insist on mortal gratitude to vindicate moral action? Am I that capricious? The Viking ship jerked as it crunched over coral. A turtle surfaced. Akeda had always thought that the sea turtles looked like graceful, swooping boulders with unearthly buoyancy on the currents. But something was wrong with this turtle. The princess was too angry at having lost the golden apple to notice. She continued sulking saltily at the sun. The turtle moved like something being jerked on a string, like a piece of bait on a rod. It reminded the Viking of a wheeled toy horse on a string he had seen at one of the Mediterranean ports, and he jibed around to examine this occurrence. In the clear water, the Viking could see that where the flippers should have been were tiny, turning, rusty iron gears moving a plastic wedge. The turtle moved like a machine, and yet it was the body of a real living biological turtle. Akeda could see the glint of the breath of life in the turtle's sad dark eyes, and this, of course, filled him with foreboding. A turn landed on the prow. But where it should have landed in a peaceful perch, this bird fell like a book falls off a shelf. The princess startled. On closer examination, Akeda could see that this wingless bird was propelled by twin metal blades spinning on a central locus. Ka! The bird announced to no one in particular and then buzzed off into the distance, leaving a trail of oily fumes in its wake. A beautiful tropical island loomed menacingly on the horizon. Akeda and the princess could see a tangle of smoke reaching into the cheery blue sky like poison ivy in a flower patch. Akeda longed to turn back to the familiar icy waters of home, but the hull of the great longship had sustained too much damage from the prying scratches of mermaid hands. He would have to beach the longship to make repairs. Thank you for listening to this Sunshine Satellite Story Podcast. This is an original story by Amanda Louise Van Stratum. All rights reserved. For more original stories and poetry, including links to purchase text copies of my books, please visit me at sunshinesatellite.com. If you've enjoyed this story, please let me know by leaving me a review and rating in the comment section. I hope to hear from you soon.